on the next episode of the Creativity in Motion podcast, social media manager, Courtney Alexander. More times than I can count, whether it's organic or, you know, paid social media, where I'm like, this is so awesome and I'm so excited for this and it's going to be so good. And the thing completely bombs. Our intro music sounds like this. Hi, my name is Mark Mosry. And I'm Chris Hollow, and this is episode number 17 of Creativity in Motion, a podcast about creativity where we talk with creatives of all kinds to find out why they create and especially how they overcome creative obstacles. In this episode, we're going to be talking with social media guru, Courtney Alexander. You're a guru now. Woohoo! That's right. Before we jump into it, we'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Nosey College of Art. Nosey College opened in 1973 as a fine art school and is transformed into Tennessee's only private art college. They offer bachelor's degree programs in commercial illustration, graphic design, video and film, photography, and a culinary arts degree. They've got a beautiful 55,000 square foot facility that was built with the artistic student in mind that includes computer labs, production suites, photography and video studios, and a fully stocked equipment cage. Everything students need to get creative. To learn more about NOSI College of Art, you can visit nosi.edu for degree program details, faculty information, and student work. Today on the podcast, we're talking with Courtney Alexander, who's worked on social media campaigns for companies such as the Grand Ole Opry, Ole Red, the Southeastern Conference, and many small businesses such as All People Coffee, The Wander Club, and Eat Street. Courtney, thank you so much for being here today. Of course. Thank you guys so much for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, I know that you and Chris have worked together before and you've known each other for some time because both of you worked at the Opry for the Opry and got to know each other well there. But for those those people who aren't quite sure what a social media guru is, everybody knows what social media is, but um, what makes you a guru? That is a great compliment. So thank you for that. Um, I mean, I think basically what I do, I mean, everyone knows, like you said, what social media is. Um, you know, it's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. We're always finding a new one uh, just about every day. But there's the the public facing posts that you see. So when a brand posts, um, you know, a new video, a new reel, a new TikTok, those types of things. Um, and then I think a lot of what people don't see is that back end side of, reporting and data and planning and strategy and that type of stuff as well. Um, and so it's really a holistic kind of approach to making the content that the end customer, end viewer sees, um, making it really great from top to bottom. And there's a lot of uh, thought that goes into it that other people may think that it's just posting on a whim, but it really is very planned out. Yeah. Posting on a whim. That is definitely what it seems like to me because I don't, well, I don't post that often, but I, respect the power of social media and sort of being in control of that seems like a giant mystery to me. Like, I don't even know, I don't even know how you could possibly be in control of that when the public has so much say in, in kind of how things go, the kind of the ebb and flow and the, the rise and fall of um, brands and popularity and things like that. It seems like it's uncontrollable. It kind of is. I mean, I think half of social media is planned and half of it is kind of reacting and so you can have a planned social calendar and be as, you know, well planned out as you want to be. But I think a lot of what makes a good social media manager is someone who can think on their feet and they can, you know, not even just react, but also create those conversations. And, you know, if there's a crazy weather or something that happens, you know, in Nashville, like we had to pivot our social media plan. If there's, you know, there were the tornadoes last um, March in 2020 um, and those types of things, you really do have to be. Uh, proactive in planning those things. And then if you have, you know, posts that are scheduled, you have to keep in mind um, unscheduling them should something crazy happen. You know, if we had an opera member pass away, we had to completely pivot our entire strategy. Or, you know, if an opera member was going to be invited, um, then that changed the whole strategy because we didn't find out until, you know, an hour or two before anyways. So I think a lot of it is planning it out, but then also being very flexible uh, to be able to um, be, relevant in that and or in the space for the day or for the week or whatever. And so it's really a mix of both and not being too set in either way. You could definitely come across as 
you know, a corporate asshole if you if you weren't aware of sort of what's happening and you just let your calendar do its do its thing and release when you set it up to do that. Oh, you know? Yeah. It's like like you're saying that that you could be pretty I could that could really damage your brand oh, if totally. you're offering a ten percent off sale on something right after something horrible happens. Absolutely. I think that's part of um especially with bigger companies, uh you have, you know, C suite and you have people who are invested from a high level and they don't really understand all of it. And so a lot of what I think social managers have to do is really be that, um, that kind of liaison between, yes, you're the CEO. Yes, you're the CMO, whatever. You're, you're someone who makes decisions, but also you're not someone who's very tied into the consumer. And so social kind of has to be that mix in between those. And, um, you know, there were a lot of times when you'd have a decision maker say, Hey, this has to be posted. And you're like, yeah, that's not going to work. Uh, that's not going going to resonate with our audience and then trying to figure out some sort of uh, compromise of, okay, we're, a lot of times it would be asking the question to a high level somebody saying, you know, I know you want us to do this, but like, what is your goal? Because the way that you're asking me to do it is not going to work very well based on my experience and what I know works and doesn't work. So if they're like, well, we want more tour sales, you know, at the Opry or when I worked for the SEC, it was, you know, we want to sell tickets to the football championship or we want to promote the track and field championship. But their idea to get there was a bad one. <laughs> and so figuring out how to still accomplish their goal um, and respectfully say that's a bad idea. Um, and then, you know, understanding your audience and understanding where they're coming from and what they want to see um, and giving them that content that they want to see to still, you know, get uh, the right, um, you know, the right thing accomplished. Um, but doing it in a better way that resonates more. Tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you came to sort of be, have this role in social media. You know, what, what prepares you for that? I think, you know, a lot of it is education, but even more than that, it's experience. And there's kind of, um, I want to say like a special type of person that can just kind of figure it out. There's not really, you can't be book smart and figure out how to make it in social media because as soon as you take a class on social media, it's outdated. Like literally the platforms are changing every single day and you can't get too married to one platform or one strategy. Um, so my background, I started in athletics. Um, and so my undergraduate degree was in sports journalism. And so my internships all throughout college were with, um, the athletic department. I went to the university of Tennessee, Knoxville. And so I was also an athlete. So I got into the athletic department, worked with football, women's basketball, men's basketball, um, and then some of the Olympic sports as well that, you know, don't have a ton of coverage, but me being an Olympic sport athlete, I really care about those underserved sports and kind of have a, a little soft spot for the, for the little guys, um, which is also kind of how I got into, uh, working with small businesses, but basically started out in athletics. And I came up in the time where social media was just kind of getting started for brands. And, uh, we didn't really know exactly how to do it, but they, they were kind of like, oh, just give it to the intern. Like, whatever. What's Twitter? What's Instagram? Like, it doesn't matter. Give it to the intern. And I was like, great. I get to own something. This is awesome. And so I really spent a lot of time researching data and saying, oh, well, this tweet got five likes, but this one got 500. Like, what did I do differently? And I kind of started just doing this kind of investigation myself because I thought it was interesting. And it was something that I was able to own for the first time in my very young career being what, 19 years old. And from there, I started kind of having a little niche of like, hey, I can do all of these, you know, journalism things that you know you need. And these, I can do all these like reports and these, you know, analysis and game reports and all this stuff. But I can also do the social media stuff. And so that kind of created me in this little niche. And then after college, I worked for a couple of different conferences and a couple of different sports entities. Went from there to the SEC where I had some experience going to an SEC school um, and I was their first ever social media manager, their first ever full-time social media uh, person. And so from there, I kind of started creating strategies and PowerPoint decks of like, this is how you're successful. And it was um, that at that point, it was 2014. And so brands were finally understanding like, oh, this is important. We don't really know what budget to put behind it. We're not going to put any paid advertising behind it, but we're going to be organic and we're going to have a presence. And so um, from there, I really kind of uh, dove in to the social media space and what it means and how it can really grow and kind of started really backing it behind data and reporting and creative too. And saying this picture does great, or this video does great. And like when I post a video, it gets 50% more reach or whatever, those types of things. And then I went to the Opry and, you know, they, they had had a pretty good social strategy, but then they started growing into other brands and 
Chris and I worked together on Old Red, and for a minute they expanded to uh, a venue in New York, and um, <laughs> you know expanded into more Old Reds. And so, with each growing uh, different part of the business, they needed a new strategy. And so, from there, I started kind of building out uh, strategies for brand new brands. And so, you know, Old Red started, and we were like, "Does Old Red swear? Can I say ass on Twitter?" I'm like, well, you know, as we know, Old Red is owned by Blake, Blake Shelton. <laughs> Blake does. Blake's the boss. Can I say ass? Well, there's a big ass country burrito on the menu. So can I say ass on Twitter? And like really developing that brand voice. And so it was a little corporate-y, uh, but it was, it was Blake. And that's Blake's bar. And that's Blake's restaurant. And so if Blake says shit, then Old Red can say shit. Right. Like there's a big old neon sign that says, kiss my country ass. Like let's be... Old Red, I think that is what the brand right. is. And so I really just started diving into what is a brand voice and what does Old Red want to be in growing Old Red organic socials? Like, how does that make people want to come visit? And how does that link back to revenue? And so, uh, you know, it really just started out, I don't want to say accidentally, but kind of because they just kind of fell in my lap. And, um, you know, I'm someone who just really likes to uh, if own something and I'm kind of a perfectionist. And just go from there and, you know, see where it takes you. Social media to me is a bit like the stock market in totally. that, in that I don't know how it works, uh, A, and B, it seems somewhat illogical how it works. Like it's this sort of far away, it, it, it's just, <laughs> I don't understand what makes a stock go up or down. And, and it, it's, it just seems, it seems more random than, than I like. I don't really like that it's. It's, it's just seems too random to me. I would agree. I think it seem, I think it seems that way, but deep down, I know it's not. And I think it's interesting that you said that it's half random and that it's half planned and, or an attempt at a plan and an, an attempt at being controlled. And I really respect that, but I don't, I still don't, I don't understand it. Like Chris, I don't understand it. Um, but I do respect it. Totally. I, I mean, I think there's a place for that though. Like as a consumer of social media, you're not supposed to understand it. You're just supposed to enjoy it. Mm. You know, it's the professionals behind it that really are supposed to make it feel random and make it feel connected. But really there's a larger strategy behind it. And I think that's, um, you know, yes, it's data. It's also creative. I mean, there's been more times than I can count, whether it's organic or, you know, paid social media where I'm like, this is so awesome. And I'm so excited for this. And it's going to be so good. And the thing completely bombs. Like it gets freaking like 200 people reached. And I'm like, are you kidding <laughs> what me? What happened? I was so excited. Like I thought right. it was like based on past data, you know, and sometimes it just bombs. But then sometimes like I'll put, like with old red, I would post like the shittiest tweet and it would just be like something dumb. Maybe it was a response to like Blake on the voice or just something sassy. And it would get like 3,000 retweets and we only had, you know, 4,000 followers, you know? Right. And you're like, why in the world did that blow up? But it's so much of timing and relevance right. and, you know, just kind of like fitting in with like what's going on. And sometimes it is random, but I think there's a level of social media in general that is just reading the room and like, is this a good time to say this? Or like, you know what, if it sucks the half-life of a tweet or a right. social media post is so fast. It's like, over. Unless, it, unless you totally screw up, they're going to forget about it the next day. I mean, there have been times I've posted something and I may or may not have made dead spin once. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, people don't remember it. And so, you know, you do you do your best. You, um, you make educated guesses. You, you know, have data behind what you think is going to work. But at the end of the day, you know, you win some, you lose some. And that just is what it is. But, you know, the algorithms sometimes work. Sometimes they don't. None of us even know exactly what the different social platforms algorithms are. It's this like crazy, like wizard behind the the curtain that like none of us really understand. Um, but, you know, as social media managers and then too, as consumers, like you just kind of take it for what it is and don't take yourself too seriously. Well, I'm glad you brought up algorithm because I just wrote down the word algorithm. <laughs> I'm sure it's spelled incorrectly, but it's, <laughs> I can read it. And I was thinking that that's got to be one of the biggest struggles that you have is working, working around or with this mystical algorithm thing that you don't really know how it works or it's, it's something that's so, so far out of your control 
that it's a, it's an unknown entity that you're not able to really, you try your best to work with it. Is that like a, a problem? Is that something you have to work around? Absolutely. I mean, even like I have reps at each of the social platforms and they don't even know, like there's a, probably a finite group of 10 engineers that do the whole thing. And you're like, well, I'm trying to spend $500,000 on ads. Like, can you please tell me how to like, you know, make them right. work? Help, help me out here. Right. I'm like, yeah. I'm trying to give you money. Yeah. And they don't, a lot of times they don't even know, you know, but even if we did know, it's going to change next week right. and the week after that and the week after that, you know, for instance, you know, you have Black Friday ads, which are a huge time in social media. And so you have CPMs, which is the cost to reach a thousand people. And you go from $7 CPMs in October to $35 CPMs the week of Black Friday, you know, and so you're like, okay, it's five times the cost to advertise. So you're like, okay, like, let me like move around all my data. But then there's so many other factors of, you know, how many people are on the platform or like the month that the world shut down during the pandemic, Mm. there were so many people online during those months and everyone was, you know, going crazy. They were at home for the first time, like ever, and everyone was buying stuff online. And so like the platforms, you know, even when they're somewhat stable, the world isn't stable. Humans aren't robots. And so, you know, you really can't even predict that as well. And so literally, as soon as you think you understand the algorithm, um, it changes. So there's really, there's no use in trying to completely understand it. But like you said, Chris, it's just, it's working around it and just using the data that you do have. Um, and then using the, the intangibles that you can't really quantify. Um, and kind of just going from there and again, reading the room and doing the best you can. I'm frustrated on your behalf. Thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) You know, what's interesting to me is that, you know, marketing and advertising has been around forever. Totally. And, and the principles I think of marketing and advertising are the same that they have always been. So you have this very, uh, sort of old school philosophy about, um, raising awareness and, and creating um, desire for your product or your service that's been around forever. And, and people who wear suits and sit on boards are familiar with it and they understand just, you know, to a large extent, they understand these principles and that hasn't changed. Even if you're a tech startup right now with a super innovative product, those principles still apply yet. Here's this new kind of media this new way of reaching potential audience, potential customers that is totally unlike anything else, but it has to sit on top of this old philosophy and these old principles. So to me, it's very interesting where these two meet because the intern is the person that gets handed the social media uh, campaign or the social media, you know, problem, right? Uh, they get handed the social media to figure out, figure out how to make this work for us. But it's the people at the top who are used to these sort of old school philosophies who control the money, who decide how much money to put into social media. So how do you, like, it seems impossible that this really new thing can even really make a dent in these sort of old established ideas and philosophies about marketing and advertising, yet that's what's happening. And the people who are controlling it are relatively new in the world of marketing and advertising compared to someone who worked at, you know, on Madison Avenue in New York at a, at a prestigious advertising agency who created campaigns for, you know, world famous campaigns for, you know, whatever. And it just seems, it seems hopeless. Right. But it's not hopeless. That to me is amazing. Yeah. Oh gosh. So much to unpack there. I mean, I think, you know, there's still a place for this old advertising, this old marketing, these campaigns, there's still a place for that. Um, But I think a lot of marketing is being where the people are. And so people are on social media. I think we've really been, um, we've gotten very spoiled transitioning from traditional marketing to digital marketing because we have data. And so back in the day you put in you know, a magazine ad or a, a radio ad or a TV commercial or a billboard. And you just kind of are like, oh, I hope it works. Like, we'll see if, you know, we get more Opry tickets sold or if we get more tour tickets sold or if we get more, you know, eyeballs on the SEC football championship or whatever it may be. And you just kind of hope for the best. Um, you might know how many people drive by on I-40, you know, in a day, but that's all you have. So 
with digital, you can actually track that. And so um, I think over the years since digital has really started becoming a very legitimate marketing resource, we've got very, very spoiled by the data. And so you know exactly how many people saw your ad. You know exactly how many people clicked on it. You know exactly how many people uh, converted, you know, and um, there's been a lot of like tracking conversations with iOS on Apple and all these things. So like this year has been very, very um, just pivotal in the entire digital marketing and especially social media advertising because now there's different things that you can and can't track. But regardless of that, you know, people still purchase things and people are still people. And so the method of reaching them um, is is all that's changing, but their actions are still the same. And so I think a lot with digital marketing, what's happened is that it's given a space for small businesses, especially, and kind of the little guy to be able to really compete against the Amazons and the Walmarts and the Targets of the world. Um, because you can reach people who are super interested. So um, what I do in my career now is I work mostly with small businesses and we reach people on Facebook and Instagram ads, TikTok, Snapchat. Um, and so otherwise people would have never known about them unless they were in a store, in Walmart, in Target. But now, you know, there's a place for them. And and you have the data specifically to say, you know, I know that I need this percentage of margin to make a profit. So we need to be at this return. Um, and if we're above that return, let's spend money. Um, and so it's really been cool to see the little guy that can really make a difference in marketing. Um, but at the end of the day, people are still the same. We're just reaching them where they are. And where they are is you know, even podcast ads, you can track how many people are listening to your podcast um, and you can get their data, you know? And so we can do more data on how many times is your customer purchasing from your company, the lifetime value of them, you know, on, on average, a person buys from my company five times. And so I know how to retarget them or, you know, generally this is a a one and done type project um, or product. Um, And so once they buy from us once, like we don't really need to hit them again because, you know, maybe they're not going to purchase again based on your research. And so there's just so much data, so much more data that we can have with this digital landscape than we could before. I imagine you fall on both sides of sort of data versus privacy in that you're, you're looking for data to help your clients reach the right number of people. And, and you know, whether the ad was clicked on or linked or looked at or how long they were, how many seconds they were on this ad and all this crazy data. But at the same time, you're Courtney at home on the couch on an iPad and damn it, Amazon just pitched me a product that I thought about. (laughs) Yeah, I have a lot. I have a lot of thoughts on that because you're right. As an advertiser, like I really want that data and that would be really helpful to be able to optimize off of. Um, But, you know, it can, it can seem a little creepy. However, knowing the information that I know about working in this industry, um, it's less creepy than you would think. Uh, As an advertiser, we don't know anything about you specifically. Um, You know, we might know that you're, vaguely interested in traveling or in cooking or in photography or filmmaking. We might know those types of things based on what you do online, but we don't have a single clue in the whole world that your name is Chris and this is where you live and all those types of things. So that amount of data is anonymous. We don't know that. We just know that someone clicked and someone bought. Um, And so that part, I think a lot of people get a little confused as to what uh, what type of data they're giving away. But also, you know, there's this other side of, you know, I don't need certain apps tracking my location. That's completely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. You know, so I I think there's a level of um, people get very paranoid about their data, not realizing that like that we're we're not actually tracking you like individual advertisers aren't tracking you. All we're trying to do is give you literally at the end of the day, all we're trying to do is give you ads for products that we think you would like. Um, I, I always say I wish there was a method on these social apps that where you could type in like, hey, I'm looking for Christmas gifts for this person in my life, or I'd really like a new pair of shoes. Can you please show me ads for shoes? That would be right. so much better and it would fix this whole freaking privacy issue. But it's like, I can tell them, I'd like some new sunglasses. Please show me ads for sunglasses. And I don't know why they haven't done that. Like, there you go. Facebook, please yeah. take that and make millions of dollars on that, please. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think there's that level of privacy for digital that we never had that issue with traditional marketing because it was insanely anonymous. We didn't know where the heck these people came from. We just know that they came. Right. Um, and so there's this level of, yes, we can track, um, but how much will you allow me to track? And so Apple is, has a, it's messed up my job a lot. I wish you could just turn it off at times. Not the, the, the opposite of that. I wish you could say, I've bought a hammer. 
I don't need you to show me ads for hammers oh, right. for the next six months. Right. I'm good. Yeah. I bought it. I'm, I'm done. It's over. Right. Yeah, I did my search. Sure. It's done. For sure. <laughs> I know that it's, it's great to be able to sort of track and understand consumer behavior. And so you know where to place the ads. The pandemic has changed people's behavior. It's changed their online behavior. It's changed the things that they buy. Do you think that all of the data that that has is being collected based on a culture, a population, a planet full of people who are living under a pandemic, how valid do you think that that data is going to be once the pandemic subsides or once we learn how to live with it enough so that we go back to towards what we would have considered to be normal, you know, because that, that behavior, like let's just say the pandemic had lasted four months and then we conquered um, COVID and everybody went back to normal. All of that data that was collected during that four months is pretty much invalid, right? Until the next pandemic, right? (laughs) At which point you might refer to that again. But if it was a little blip, then you would be back to normal and you'd be back to the old behaviors that were happened before COVID, right? Obviously, that's not the case. We're 18, 19 months into COVID. You have a much larger um, database of behavior um, that you can that you can sort and mine and understand. And perhaps those behaviors are going to last a little bit longer. But if we conquered COVID in a month and we returned to normal, would you guys be scrambling to figure out, okay, now they're going to, now the population is going to change again, right? We changed during COVID. Now COVID's over. We're going to change again. You know, you know what I'm asking? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think there's a couple of things there. I think, um, yes, people's, you know, in general, their actions changed a lot at the beginning of COVID and throughout COVID. And, you know, we've all kind of adjusted as we've gone and now it's lasted for a hot minute. And I think part of it, so at the very beginning, of the pandemic, as we kind of went in a couple of months in for like, let's say specifically for paid advertising, we started creating audiences specifically of has bought since COVID because people were all of a sudden at home and they were buying more uh, sweatpants and they were maybe (laughs) buying more uh, home office supplies and they were buying more home decor. Web cameras. Totally. Now they're working from home. More dog leashes because, oh gosh, now I can take my dog on a walk and I haven't done that in, you know, five years. Um, and so I think those types of things, yeah, they did change a lot. And so we started building audiences based off of has bought since what was that March 13th, 2020, when the world shut down. Um, and so that started kind of changing things. I think as we've gone to for paid advertising, you can only track data up to six months. And so after you're past that six month mark, we don't know if you were on our website six months and one day ago, that, that, that pixel data. So there's a, there's a, a piece of code on every website that does ads where we can track who goes to your website. After 180 days, that information goes away. So we can't track pre-COVID at this point in time. Um, But I also think, and this is probably more of like a a cultural, even like non-marketing thought process, but I don't think there's going to be like a, we're in COVID today and we're not tomorrow ever. I don't think that it's ever going to be a hard stop. I think there's going to be a rolling five, six, seven month, 12 month, 18 month, rolling process of getting back to quote unquote normal. Right. Just like there was a transition period when COVID hit, there was a transition period before people got into their quote unquote COVID behavior, Mm -hmm. right? Dependable COVID behavior. Yeah. And if it were to end, there'd be another transition Mm -hmm. in some direction, right? It seems like it would make sense that if it was back towards whatever normal is, but it could change in a different way. Yeah. And I think too, another point would be that I don't think personally, that we're ever going to go back to what life was like pre-COVID. You know, I think people are able to work from home. I think that companies that never wanted to work from home or never thought that was a possibility have realized it is a possibility. Or you can get better workers if you allow them to live wherever they want. I've heard of so many people doing like nomad lives where they, you know, Airbnb their house and then they go travel the country or travel the world for a little while. And so I think are as humans, at least as Americans, I think our, our thought process has changed of how uh, life was before COVID and how maybe, you know, we need to transition the way that we've thought we've been thinking about things. Um, you know, and even in terms of creativity, it's like the ads and the social posts, like we're just a different 
human race now, post-COVID. We've been through this pandemic that none of us had really ever experienced before. And so I think a lot of that's changed. And so to get back to the original point, um, you know, I think that there, I think that the data that we do have will still be valid once COVID, hopefully there is an end date in sight, but I think that it'll still be useful as we kind of transition into like whatever is next. But I don't, I don't think the data will be completely not useful. Um, I think it'll just be kind of transitioning the same way we transitioned in the beginning. Well, it sounds like after three months or six months, the data won't be there anyway. So there's a, there's a, sort of a built-in degree of, for lack of a better word, nimbleness. Yeah, it kind of um, rotates through. It, like, you're like on to the next thing in six months. So you're just, you're, if your finger is on the pulse of what's happening, then in six months, your finger is still going to be on the pulse of what's happening and you'll be adapting according to whatever's going on at that time. Yep. And that's just paid too, just for paid social. That's when that data expires. I think there's also the level of organic social and then every other piece of marketing and everything like that. I think, you know, for that, it's a little bit easier to um, transition just because it's more like in the moment. And like we said, you know, a tweet lasts what, 30 minutes and then it's kind of gone forever. Not literally, but kind of. So you become a candidate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then oh, it's, gosh. it's all fine. All they can the find receipts. all that. Yes. <laughs> if this is a good place to switch gears, then I'll switch gears and ask you this question. Go for it. Um, I have a couple of questions. What do you think are your biggest obstacles to doing your job well? Like, what are the things that that really, you know, when you fa- when you come up against these things, you're like, oh, how am I going to get around this? Or how am I going to break through this? I think probably one of the things is kind of what we talked about, the algorithm. It's always changing. It's a moving target. You're literally never going to master the algorithm. There's just no way. Um, you know, I have a master's degree in digital marketing, but like I will never master digital marketing no matter what. Um, so that's part of it is like this like level of always changing, whether it's paid social, organic social, um, I'm always learning. That's part of the reason why I love this industry is that you're never going to be like, Oh, I've learned everything. Cool. Like call it a day. Um, and I think that's kind of a level of like where this new level of digital marketing is that's different from traditional marketing is that I think back in the day, there was probably a way to master traditional marketing. A billboard's a billboard, a radio ad's a radio ad. And yeah, there may be some things that change, but like pretty much it works the same way. And I think with digital, there's so much more data involved that we have so much more information um, on the customer and on the world and, you know, who's our, who's reacting to our content. Um, it's easy to uh, take that for granted. And on the other side, I think that the data is great but then you also have to uh, do the other side of data, which is reporting on it. And then if the data goes bad, explaining it. And so there's this whole other level, especially with higher ups of like, yes, uh, you know, we made less money last month than the month before, or, you know, our margins weren't as good or here's the data. And so having to kind of explain all of that. And then there's the actual tangible data and there's the intangible And so there's, you know, I think there's a lot of guesstimating and there's a lot of hypothesizing of, you know, we didn't have as good of creative this month or we didn't, you know, have whatever or the price to advertise went up or there's so many variables that it's kind of hard to nail down. And so sometimes I think people want you to um, have all the answers and be the source of truth. And in reality, in digital marketing as a whole, there's just, there's no way to be a million percent right. A lot of it is hypothesizing based on, you know, all of my experience and all of my knowledge. This is what I think. Um, but sometimes that's not good enough for people who are making decisions. Um, and so as a social media manager, like sometimes you just have to take an L or take an, I don't know. Um, I always say in marketing, like your answer 100% of the time should be, it depends. There is no two uh, lawyers. Well, that well is, yeah. And that's really frustrating for a business. <laughs> it owner. totally is. But you know, there's no two businesses that are the same. There's no two social posts that are the same. There's no two ads that are the same. Like everything is so different. And so it bothers the crap out of me whenever you have a, a guru who says, this is the only way for it to work. So if it's ad, this audience is the audience to work or this bidding style or this whatever on the back end of ads manager is like the way to do it or images are working right now or videos are working right now or you know seven second videos are the way to go but six seconds are terrible but seven seconds are work and it's just like you got to test like you got to take your own data from your own account you got to test on your own 
Um, we, I always, or my coworkers and I are always like ABT, always be testing. No matter what it is, what whatever it is that you're doing in any sort of creative field, you got to test and you got to do it on your own and you got to do it with the customer base that you have because every customer base is different. And so whatever it is that you're doing, you can hypothesize all day long, but you got to put in the work. You got to do the testing to figure out what works for you because that's not what's going to work for your neighbor. With the understanding that the, whatever the you learn from the test, when you go to apply that the next time around, that that suddenly might not work all the time. You know. It might not. Hopefully it will, you know, especially if the time range is, is close by, but you're right. Yeah. It could totally change. Yeah. Um, but then hopefully, you know, you kind of have this, like, hopefully it's been, you know, maybe a month, hopefully it hasn't changed too much by then, but you can still, I think, even if it has changed, take that data and say, this worked, but let's still try some new things. Or this worked a month ago. Mm-hmm. It's not working now. But like, again, going back to the, you got to be nimble, no matter what you're doing in marketing, you got to be able to take that data take that information, take those intangibles and then be flexible. You know, if it doesn't work, all right, let's try something different. Like that literally last week I had an ad and I was like, this is going to be awesome. <laughs> the thing got like one purchase and like it just completely bombed. And so it's like, all right, well that didn't work. Maybe I'll try it again next year. Call it a day. Let's try something else. I was just sitting here thinking about if the difference between working for a large company and a small company. And you know, if you're, I was envisioning like sales, you mentioned sales. I was envisioning sales being off. So if you're working for a small company, sales are off. And then the owner says, our sales are off. What the hell? To the social media manager. But if you're in a, you're in a corporation, you know, the CEO goes, hey, sales are off to the, to the CFO. The CFO goes, what the hell? Sales are off to the CMO. CMO goes, hey, what the hell? Sales are off to the social media manager. Like it works downhill until you have to explain this is why I think sales are off and, and it's, it just seems way more complicated. And I, I would prefer to work for a small company and not have to be that kind of a cog in that sort of a wheel. Yeah. I love working for small businesses. It is so fulfilling because you do get to work with the founders and you get to work with the people who generally build the company and they're so passionate. And like that passion just really bleeds off on everyone around them, which is really, really cool. Um, and not to say there's anything wrong with large companies because you do have a lot more resources, which is really, really right, nice. Right. But too, in a, in a bigger company, there's usually a lot more things that impact the sales, you know? And so if we look specifically at the Opry, big company, a lot of assets, a lot of people working there, you know, if tours are down, all right, well, let's look at, you know, the reviews. Let's look, let's look at the social media marketing. Let's look at organic. Let's look at paid. Let's look at billboards. Let's look at radio ads. Let's look at total amounts of tourism in Nashville. The cost you know? of gas, the cost of hotels. Right, the cost of, well, yeah, hotels are ridiculous. Yeah. Cost of Airbnbs, yeah. you know, all these different things. And so there's just so much more diversity, I think, in the marketing. Um, and it's not even the marketing. It's, you know, how are the tour guides? How's the concessions on the tours? Do they suck? Is that why people aren't coming? Like, How are the hot dogs? Totally. <laughs> how are the pretzels? Do you have mustard for the pretzels? Like there's right. so much. Whereas with a small business that there's a lot less moving pieces, there's a lot less cogs in that kind of system to where you can be able to narrow it down a little bit more. Um, and so for digital marketing, makes it a lot, e- it makes it a lot easier if they're only running Facebook ads, right? Maybe they're running some Google ads too here and there. Maybe they're doing some emails, but like, if I know that, you know, so one of my companies, we we've spent about $600,000 in Q4 of 2021. Um, and that's the majority of their marketing budget, but that's probably 80% of their marketing budget. So if sales are down, the founder's coming to me and he's like, yo, Courtney, we're spending this much money in ads. Why are we down? What are we doing? You know? And, and so it's a little bit easier to say, all right, well, if I'm spending 80% of your marketing budget, then I can assume that 80% of your sales are, you know, from marketing. And so there's just so many different ways you can kind of approach that. But yeah, small businesses are the bomb. What makes a good uh, small business customer for you, a good small business client? You know, I think a lot of it is listening um, and letting people, letting the experts do their job. I think that's part of a lot, probably where large corporations maybe have a little bit of a, uh, <laughs> a downside is that there's so many cooks in the kitchen and they all think they're experts, um, which to their own, you know, they may be an expert in something. Um, but I think with small businesses, it's great for them to be like, you know, I'm an expert at X. Uh, but I know that I'm not an expert at marketing, so I'm going to leave it to a marketer to do it, you know, and they, they do have a lot of trust in you, I think, which is really nice. 
And so at a corporation, you know, you have, you're a manager, but then you have a senior manager and a director and a VP and a CMO and the COO and the CEO, you know, and you're having to answer all these people and each of them have a different understanding about marketing and a different care. The COO doesn't care what I'm tweeting about, but he does care about the sales. The CMO maybe cares a little bit more about the level of, of content, what I'm saying, but does not care about X or, you know, they care about having 5 million followers, but they do not care how we get there. You know, and so those types of things, um, I think with small businesses, they do care about a lot of the details. Um, and a lot of times it's their livelihood. They've built this, this company from putting together five packages a day from their bedroom. And then it, you know, grows into this multi-million dollar company, which is cool. But there's just so much more passion, I think, which is really cool. And it makes me, not that I don't care about large companies because I do. And I was, Chris, you know, I was so passionate about yeah. the Opry working there. And they're an amazing company with amazing artists and just such a, a passionate environment. But I think if I were to work directly with the, I mean, I don't even know, the founder of the Opry. When was that? Yeah. <laughs> 1925. Colonel Ryman. <laughs> <laughs> like if I were to work for that person who, you know, built it from, I work for what, Lula over at, uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> over at the Ryman, like, I'm sure I would have had that same level of passion of like, this is your baby and I'm going to take care of it. It's so much more personal if you're, if it's, and I think that would, could also be a, a downside really, because it would be really a challenge, I think, to as much as I enjoy working with smaller companies and helping them get their creative life started. It's also so personal that it's a little intimidating. Oh, they're way too close to the product half the time, or not even half the time. 99% of the time, the founder's way too close. Yeah. So I've had clients or potential clients that I've talked to and they, you know, want me to run their marketing. And I've had to tell them, I don't believe in your product. And I'm really sorry, but I don't think I'm the right fit to sell this. And maybe someone is, but they get really offended and maybe rightfully so. Um, but they've, you know, put all of their life savings and all of their livelihood into this brand or this company. And, and you know, you're like, I'm sorry, I don't, think it's going to work. I don't think there's a product market fit. I think, you know, the product's too expensive for what it is, or I don't think that there's a place for it in the market and they do get offended. But at the same time, I'm all about honesty and transparency. And it's like, yeah, if I don't think I can sell your product, I'm not going to do it. Uh, sounds like that might be an example of something that a, a, a would make for not a good client. Someone who yeah. <laughs> isn't willing, like you said, to listen to the experts, like that's your, you know, that's your job. Let me ask you this question. If you, again, I'm, I'm thinking sort of about the big picture here and all the data and the way that you guys respect the data and, and try to understand the data and really follow the data and use the data to steer your ad placement and your platforms and things like that. It sounds like it's like the data always tell you what you should do. And it seems like, you know, maybe there's not a lot of room for creativity. So if you are a social media manager and another person is a social media manager and both of you have access to the same data, both of you have access to the same information, and both of you are making a pitch to this client, where might you differ in your approach as opposed to another person, right? Because if it's data-driven and you have the same data, it seems like maybe you'd be pitching the same thing. Yeah. I think creativity really is a huge factor there. So um, yes, data is incredibly important. Data is the driver of most decisions, but we're all humans. We're not robots. So what works um, is different for every person too. And so I think, you know, with social media and talking about marketing in that way, especially with ads, when you're scrolling through your Facebook or Instagram, uh, if you see a sponsored post, what do you look at first? the picture, right? right? You're not looking at the copy. You're not looking at the the button. You're not looking at- You may even, not even notice that it's a sponsored post. No. Because you see the picture first. You look at the picture. Yeah. That's the creative. And that's the part that is the most impactful piece of a piece of creative. I can have the best targeted audience all day long, all day long. Even if it's on organic Instagram, you could have a million followers. But if they're only looking at that picture- doesn't matter how good your targeting is or your budget is or your bid or all of these sciencey back end types of things are, they will not give a shit because all they care about is this picture or this video, or we call it a thumb stop rate. And so it's the three second video view divided by the number of impressions. And so how many people who see this picture 
if it, or video, because you have to see the video of how much, many seconds they're, they're watching. Um, how many people are stopping to watch the first three seconds? With the rise of TikTok and Instagram reels, that thumb stop has kind of moved to about one to two seconds. So you have <laughs> one crazy. to two seconds to capture their attention. And so we talk about, you know, what is the first frame? What is, is it something that's like oddly satisfying? That's like weird. Um, I, I created, so I buy ads, but I also create videos uh, for clients for their ads, which they can use on reels, TikTok, Instagram, whatever. Um, and so I did one for a pillow company a few weeks ago. And um, I was like, I kind of storyboarded the whole thing. And so, you know, again, you think that social media is just like on a whim, like, woohoo, let me just do something crazy. I wrote out this storyboard for this 15 second uh, TikTok video that we were going to use for ads. Um, and so I started by throwing my pillow in the trash, which is like weird. Why would you throw your pillow in the trash? But it has, once I gave it to the client, has a great thumb stop rate because you're scrolling through your feed and you see someone throwing their, their pillow in the trash. I saw an ad today for like this, like digital business card. And the start of the video was someone lighting a business card on fire. Why are you, why are you burning your business card? That's weird. Um, and so it's, it's this like oddly satisfying or it's this like weird something, or it's even like a trending audio or something that like catches someone's attention. So no longer do we have, you know, 60 seconds to capture someone's attention. We can't do this, you know, let's go chronologically. Let's unbox this package and let's show you what it does. No, you got to start from like the most impactful, you know, climax of the whole ad. Like that has to be in the first two seconds, you know? And so it's this creativity that is really what drives home everything. And if your creativity isn't there, it doesn't matter. But back to the data point, there's still data on creative. You can have that thumb stop rate. You can see how many people are watching 25% of your video, 50% of your video, 95% of your video, how many people are clicking. And so you can use those specific pieces of data to then say, you know, the first three seconds of my video are freaking awesome, but they're all dropping off at 25%. So why, why is it not converting or? That's a good question. But do the data tell you why? Like the data tell you, yes, that that's what's happening. Sure. But does the data tell you why? It doesn't, but I think that's kind of where you have to come into your experience and your education and infer. And so we look at it and we say, okay, at second four, this is what happens. And I think this is why they're, they're falling off. Or it could be back to the audience and say, well, I'm targeting an audience that likes Jeeps. And because of the type of persona that I think this audience is, I think this is why they're not interested. And so you can kind of go back and forth between the data and the creative. And so I think back to the original question of like, you know, you have two people who are reading the same data. I think interpreting it is what is so different. Um, and then there's also a level of, for me, it's honesty and transparency. I think a lot of marketers want everything to be all sunshine and rainbows all the time. And like, <laughs> we're always doing great and I'm making you money and this is just so great. Um, but the way that I kind of operate as a marketer and as a person is if it sucks, I'm going to tell you, like, we're having a hard month. This is really bad. And I'm doing everything I can to make it better. And I'm changing as much as I can. And I'm testing all these different things because what worked last month isn't working this month. What worked last quarter isn't working this year. What worked last year definitely isn't working this year, you know? And so being able to pivot, but also be brutally honest and say, I'm doing everything that I can. This is everything that I'm trying. And a lot of times, especially small businesses, really appreciate that honesty. And so far, I haven't gotten fired yet for being honest. <laughs> Maybe just not hired. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's funny. Like on YouTube, you know, there's ads in front of everything. Mm -hmm. Now, I've noticed how if you start start a video and an ad starts to run, that the copy or the imagery is designed to get you to to continue past that six seconds so that you don't hit the skip ad button. Mm -hmm. Like everything is designed. It's sort of like a holy shit moment. It's at five and a half seconds. So you think. I, I guess they're, yeah, cliffhanger. They want you to stay till seven or eight or nine seconds or ideally all the way through. And sometimes I'll be like on YouTube and I'll look at a, a video and I'll see the ad start to play and it'll say, I'll see, watch it count down from five, four, three, two, one, skip. And then I'll look down at the, the progress bar and it's a three minute ad. <laughs> like, yeah. are they thinking or that more? I'm, yeah. I'm thinking, are they thinking I'm just going to sit there and, be so enthralled with this three minute ad that I'll watch the whole thing. And some ads, you know, have, or have a very calculated, I'm trying to get you to stick past the six seconds where you can skip it. But it's amazing how many don't. 
and that there's no sort of cliffhanger and there's no reason for me to continue. And it just yeah. seems amazing that somebody made this ad and didn't consider that they need to keep me there longer than the six seconds before I skip it. So they're, they're not doing anything to keep me there. That just seems odd. I think that's a good kind of example of probably a corporate company or corporate agency probably made that. And they seem a little disconnected from the audience. Right. And I think a lot of times, and I've been in those places where, you know, you have a CMO that's like, this is so great. We're going to run this. And you're like, Hey, I don't think it's going to work. And they're like, I don't care. Run it. Um, and so they, I think a lot of times they have these big budgets for really good, quote unquote, good pieces of creative, not understanding that that's not what the customer's doing. You could also be in the middle of a test like that. They could be doing that to try and get data on whether that works or not. You know, totally. like that may not be a, st- a strategy that they've made a decision about yet. Maybe this is something that they're trying, mm-hmm. that they're trying to get data about. Totally. Yeah, yeah, it could be. It could be good data. But for me, if I sit through a three-minute video, it's because I got a phone call and walked away. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it played unattended. <laughs> and yeah. And then yeah. so they're thinking, oh, sweet. We got eyeballs for three minutes yeah. on, you know. And you're skewing their data. On my dishwashing go, detergent. Chris. I know. <laughs> So you can leave so, YouTube running when you leave the house right. and go run errands for four hours. <laughs> Screwing up the Nielsen rating. Yeah. Really skew their data. That's right. Are there companies and brands that you know are doing a really great job with their social media? Are there companies and brands who, when you see their social, you're like, man, these people are on it. They're super creative. They're super um, effective. Like, can you tell... And and if so, who are some of those companies that you think are doing such a, a you know a really good job with it? It's a really good question. I think there's kind of a, a well, one a level of small businesses we call them D to C, so like direct consumer, mm-hmm. which are these small businesses that I do a lot of you know work with. Um, but then there's also big ones like I think Target has really good ads. Um, they're getting me all the time on their 12 days of Christmas ads, and I'm like, ooh, what's on sale today? Um, granted, I can't go into Target without buying something. So that's a different story. Um, but I think that, you know, there's big ones and there's small ones that work really well. But I think the ones that work the best are the ones that solve a problem for you. And and they say it quickly in the ad too. And so it doesn't have to be one of those like back in the day, black and white commercials where it's like, you know, the ass scene on TV type stuff where it's like, stop, you know, using these sticky uh, pans and like try this nonstick, whatever. Not like that necessarily, but it's a problem that you have that you need to fix. Um, there's also a level of, you know, products that you need versus products that you want. There's also gifting products. I think it's just the, w- the way that they approach it and the way that they know their customer. I think um, something I've always said, and I did this a lot at Opry, was know your audience. What does your audience want? Who is your audience? At, right. at Opry, We first of all, your audience is country music fans. Duh. Um, but then we knew it skewed a little older. You know, tickets to the Opry were not cheap. And so we knew it was people that could afford it or... Maybe it was a bachelorette party that was splurging on a nice thing to do in Nashville or families who were in Nashville and needed something family friendly to do. And so knowing your audience, knowing who is coming and knowing how to resonate with them, regardless of the product, it's fixing their problem and then, or telling them, even showing them what their problem is. They may not even know they have a problem. I bought these razors off of Facebook ads. I didn't even know I had a problem with the razor that I had to shave my legs, but oh my gosh this one seemed awesome and I bought it and it is awesome. (laughs) But, you know, I think too, you know, it's brands that make you want to talk about them. So literally that razor brand, uh, I bought it when I was still working at the Opry. It came up in a freaking meeting at Opry and I was talking to one of the girls from WSM and we were like, oh my gosh, have you heard of these razors? And we're like, oh my gosh, like smoothest shave ever. So like, (laughs) you know, going back to this like level of traditional marketing, word of mouth is still a thing. Even if it's word of digital mouth and I'm you know, tagging my sister on an Instagram ad. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you would love this. I think, you know, referring friends and being able to um, vouch for something uh, yourself to someone that you know, it's a, you're, I'm a trustworthy source to my friend. Or if I'm like, hey, Chris, this looks awesome. I thought of you when I saw it. I use this, you're going to love it. Or like, let me send you a link to the thing that I bought for whatever. You're going to love it. You may do research, you may not, but you're like, I trust Courtney and I know that she wouldn't lead me astray, I'm going to buy it regardless. I might start shaving my legs. You should. Oh, these races are great. I'll okay. send you a link. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so conversely to brands that are doing well, do you find small businesses that are doing it wrong? And do you try to help them? Like, is that a pitch that you would make for a company that you like, but they're doing it wrong and you can help them and you can help fix a problem that they may have? Whether they know they have the problem or not, they may not. 
But do you sort of use that as an opportunity to pitch another a small client? Yeah, there's been a couple of clients that, you know, when I started working with them, they were spending, you know, $1,000 a month, which in ads is like a literal penny. It's nothing. Um, but if I believed in the product and if I believed in the founder or, you know, the people that I was working with, absolutely. Um, I work for a dog collar company and I do their ads and I started out just doing their Facebook and Instagram ads. And now my team and I are doing all of their marketing. When I took over, they were spending, you know, eight to $10,000 a month on ads, like not very much. Um, and we've scaled them up to about $80,000 a month and, and profitably. And they're kind of on the bigger scale, honestly, starting at $10,000 a month. But if you, you know, believe in them, if they have a good product, if it's at a good price range, if they have product market fit, you can really work with them and scale it. But, you know, you do need a good teammate, which is, you know, the person that you're working with to believe in you and say, yeah, let's try that. You know, let's try TikTok ads. Let's try uh, long form blog content for SEO purposes. Let's try, you know, different email marketing. Let's try better welcome flows. And um, there was another company that I did ads for. It was like a shampoo company, a little bit expensive. It was like, you know, $30 for some shampoo. But um, anyone who knows me knows that I have quite long hair. And I do care about the healthiness of my hair. Um, and so I, be, I believed in them, you know, and they started out at like $2,000 a month. But I was like, hey, let's work on your creative. Let's do some before and after. Let's all start do, I'll start rushing my hair with this shampoo. I'll do some before videos. And then in six weeks, I'll do some after videos. And I'll do some testimonials saying how it, you know, changed my hair and how it, what I did. And um, I did some videos about like, you know, two weeks in my hair was really greasy because I was getting all this crap out of my hair that was came from, you know, grocery store shampoos from freaking Suave or Pantene or whatever. Right. Um, and, you know, now it's my hair's really clean and now it's I don't get split ends and I'm growing like being able to vouch for that. And so, yeah, for small businesses, if I believe in the product, even if they're not there, I have one client that's spending a thousand dollars a month on ads still. It's my smallest client, but I love them. And I think they're so good. And I think that there's a place for it. And that's kind of the beauty of digital marketing different than traditional marketing is you can still play with a really small budget. Whereas 20 years ago, if you didn't have a couple million dollar budget, you couldn't run a commercial. You couldn't run a radio ad or put a billboard up. It, I mean, just to put up a billboard in Nashville, I think it costs like $10,000, I think, to like change out your billboard. You know, and so if you're a small player, like you just can't. There's literally no way you can do that. But $1,000, okay. Like if we could make a 2X or 3X return on $1,000, like Let's try it. And so there's kind of a place for the little guy in today's marketing industry, which is really cool to see. Whew, my head's spinning. <laughs> Courtney, this seems like a great place to wrap up. Um, I want to thank you so much for being here. And before we let you go, uh, we're going to ask you for one thing that you're looking forward to. And it could be it could be dinner tonight. It, <laughs> it could be two days off you know, meaning Christmas and New Year's. It sounds like you're busy all the time. <laughs> but just one thing that you're looking forward to, and Chris and I are going to answer this question too after you. That is a great question. Um, you know, I think I've been so busy with like Black Friday, Cyber Monday, all this holiday planning. And this week, all of my brands have their shipping cut off uh, for Christmas deadlines. And so I'm about to go into hopefully a somewhat lighter season where I can actually like go wrap some Christmas presents. And two, this will be the first year that I haven't traveled anywhere for Christmas. My in-laws always go somewhere crazy for Christmas and we always travel. But this year we're going to stay at home. Uh, we actually have a coffee shop that's opening up in Nashville next week. Um, and so I get to work in the coffee shop and kind of transition my marketing knowledge to like be a barista. And with my kind of decline in some ad work over the next week or two, I am pumped to get to learn this whole other side of coffee shop ownership. What are you guys interested or what are you looking forward to? I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to. My wife likes to make Christmas cookies at Christmas, and she's been planning the cookies she's going to make this year. And she, when she makes them, she makes many batches because she likes to give them away. So I'm really looking forward to those Christmas cookies because they are tasty, and um, some of them she's going to give away to me. So I'm looking forward to that. Nice. Cue uh, Christmas Cookies by George Strait. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. right. Can't afford that licensing on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to, and you kind of sort of stole my idea, uh, which is I'm looking forward to making bread for the holidays. Like I, I made bread for Thanksgiving and took it over to the in-laws and, and it's always, you know, I just like, you, you start the day before and you let it do its thing. And then you it just, it's a, it's a process, but I like making bread and I specifically like eating bread. Yeah. There you Fair. go. 
That's, that's that's the impetus for the whole thing, really. It's not right. about keeping anybody else happy. It's all about me. <laughs> it's better if you say, I'm looking forward to making bread. Yeah. Yeah. I'll eat the bread for you. Yeah. You can make some bread for the coffee shop. Absolutely. Start making money. Yeah. You'll you'll have it on my social media. I'll make one loaf a week. Yeah. Trade you. Yeah. So it costs $75. For yeah. I've, I've, I've got about 50 in ad spend. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. No 80 grand. We want to thank Courtney again for being with us. And we also want to thank our sponsor, NOSI College of Art. Creativity in Motion is produced by the hardworking team at Penumbra Entertainment. We want to thank all of you who have found this show and are listening. And we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments for either me or Mark, send us an email at creativity at penumbra-ent.com. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Creativity in Motion podcast. Until then, don't forget, a good understanding of the problem that you're trying to solve can be a great way to focus your creativity. Creativity.